The reading this morning is from Judges chapter 6, verses 1 to 40. It's the story of Gideon. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abrazite. His son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Gideon replied, If now I have found favour in your eyes, give me a sign that is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Gideon went inside, prepared a young goat, and from the ephah of flour he made bread without yeast. Bringing the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot, he brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of the Lord said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock, and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of it, the staff that was in his hand, fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realised that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid, you are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, the Lord is peace. To this day, it stands in Ophrah of the Asperites. That same night, the Lord said to him, 
take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah hole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. In the morning when the people of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished, with the Asherah pole beside it cut down and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. They asked each other, who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told, Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The people of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son, he must die, because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So because Gideon broke down Baal's altar, they gave him the name of Jerubbaal that day, saying, let Baal contend with him. Now all the Midianites, Amalekites and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the spirit of the Lord came on Gideon and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Asbarites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout the Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also into Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that they too went to meet them. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that is what happened. When Gideon rose early the next day, he squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me, but let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece, but this time make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. That night God did so. Only the fleece was dry and all the ground was covered with dew. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. This is our third week, I think, in Judges, and I wonder how you're going. It is a strange and wonderful book, isn't it? And if you're just joining us for the first time, I'll just let you know Judges is a book early in the Bible. It's about the people of Israel. Um, it comes after they've been rescued from the exodus in Egypt, before the time of the kings and well before the time of Jesus. And when we read this, we might feel quite um, far removed from it. Certainly we are by time and culturally as well. There are things that raise a lot of questions. But when we come to the Bible, we still expect to find richness in all its parts. And there is a lot of richness here for us today. And the question that we want to ask ourselves when we read these kinds of passages are the same kind of questions every time. What am I finding out about God? What do I learn about God's character here? And what do I learn about his people? And what do I see of myself here? So these are the kind of questions we want to have in our mind as we come to this story today of Gideon. 
Judge Gideon. And Gideon's story is actually three chapters long. We only have the first chapter, and I will tell you a little bit about what happens, but not all of it, so you might need to go and read the rest later. But let's have a look. We're going to go to the passage, and we have the classic cycle that keeps repeating in Judges. It begins straight away at the beginning of the chapter. It's this cycle of sin and salvation. And right there in verse 1, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That's the first stage of the cycle, their rebellion. And immediately, for seven years, God gave them into the hands of the Midianites. God punishes them. He allows them to endure a terrible suffering. And as you read on, you discover that this is one of the worst oppressions, really, that they have suffered. The Israelites are hiding in the hills, in the caves. And the Midianites, we're told, are like locusts. Now, last week we had the iron chariots that were the technology of the day. These people have camels. Now, camels are pretty resilient, big animals. And the Midianites and their camels swarmed the land and they left nothing for the Israelites. They had no mercy. And so the Israelites are hiding. They're trying to get what they can. They're trying to survive. Until finally, we see in verse 6, the next stage of the cycle. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. The purpose of this oppression has finally come to the next point. Israel remembers God and they cry out, save us, save us, God of Israel. Well, we might relate. Have you ever cried out to God in desperation when things are hard? This is an impulse of people to cry out to God even when they've forgotten him. And so we move to stage four, where God raises up a judge for Israel. Except that here, in this story, there's a departure. Before God sends a judge, what does he do? Have a look. He sends them a prophet, in verse eight. He sends them a prophet, we don't know this prophet's name, who says to them, well, he gives them a sermon. Is that what you want when you're hiding in the hills? Someone to come and preach to you? Well, God thinks it's necessary. And what does this prophet say? He reminds them, or she reminds them, of what has gone on in the past, the thing that they've forgotten. This is what the Lord says, I brought you out of Egypt. I rescued you from the Egyptians. I delivered you from the hand of your oppressors. I drove them out and I gave you the land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live but you have not listened to me. God wants them to know why they have been suffering, what is going on. You haven't listened to me. And God is ready to save them. They've cried out. The question is, once they've heard this message is, are they even listening now? We're going to find out whether they are or not. Let's keep going. Now God calls a judge. And who does he call but Gideon? Gideon is sitting under a tree, threshing wheat in a wine press. It's desperate times and desperate measures. He is secretly trying to make flour in a wine press. When you thresh wheat, you'd usually have, it would be a, you'd have a lot of it and you'd be out in the fields. He's got a little bit and he's secretly trying to grind wheat to make flour in something that doesn't look like he's got any flour. Desperate times. And God calls him. 
and she comes to him and I think this angel of the Lord, or sometimes it's called the Lord, it's a little bit confusing in the passage. Certainly Gideon believes um, that he's seen God. But he doesn't appear, this messenger doesn't appear to be anything unusual. Comes to Gideon and what does he say? The angel of the Lord says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Gideon looks nothing like a mighty warrior and he feels nothing like a mighty warrior. And he says in reply something quite cynical and doubtful, but polite. Gideon is polite. He says, pardon me, my Lord. How can I save Israel? I know, first of all, he says, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all the wonders of our ancestors? He's been listening. He's heard. He's heard the story. Did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. Gideon answers back. And how will the angel of the Lord or the Lord respond? By reassuring him. He says, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Gideon wants to know where is God and God says, here I am. And if you want things to change, then I'm telling you to go. Well, again, Gideon says, "Uh, pardon me, but um, I'm a weakling. I am from Manasseh, a half-tribe. My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. He's not the obvious choice. Gideon could probably point out other people. But when we hear this, and we know our rest of the Bible and God's word... Our ears prick up, I think, because this is a pattern, isn't it, with God? Think about Jacob, the second son, and not Esau. Think about David, the youngest uh, shepherd boy in a large family who gets called into battle and he was out in the fields and becomes the great king of Israel. Think of Jesus, who grew up in the backwater of Nazareth and becomes the Messiah, who is the saviour of the world. This is God's way to call the weakling. And so the Lord answers him in verse 16, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. And Gideon is listening and he's hopeful. He's still doubtful. He's going to test it out, isn't he? He's got a few tests. He says, okay, just wait here. Um, I want you to give me a sign. And he goes off and he starts to cook. And they don't have much. I'm impressed by the offering he brings. He brings a goat And he brings bread, he makes bread, maybe with that flour from the wine press. And when he comes back, he offers it, and the angel of the Lord says, put it over here, and touches it with the staff, and it's consumed with fire, we're told. And also in that moment, the angel of the Lord disappears. And in that moment, Gideon knows it's not a joke. Someone hasn't fooled him, he hasn't been tricked. This really is God, and he is, well, he's... He's kind of afraid and terrified and awestruck all at once. You know, in, in, um, earlier in, each, in Exodus, in the story of Moses, to look upon God would be to die. They were not to look at the Lord. And God comforts him when he says, Gideon says, Alas, 22, alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And the Lord says, Peace, do not be afraid, you are not going to die. And so Gideon builds an altar to the Lord and called it, The Lord is peace. Gideon believes he has seen the power of the Almighty God 
and he is building an altar of worship to him. And he is ready. He is the right judge, isn't he? God did call the right person. God said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one that's seven years old, verse 25, and now I want you to build me another altar. And what I want you to do is I want you to tear down the altars of the, to the other gods that you're worshipping, that the people are worshipping, and I want you to build me a proper altar. And Gideon thinks, yep, that's the right thing to do, but if I do that, um, I'm a bit scared about what everyone else is going to do. So he does it at night. So no one can see him. But he obviously doesn't do it very well because they work it out. It was Gideon. I saw him when I peeked out um, in the night. They, want, they do want to kill him when they discover that he has destroyed the altars to the Canaanite gods. And this is the moment that we answer that question from before, isn't it? The Israelites cry out. God reminds them that he is the one true God and they're not to worship other gods. They're regretful about what's going on, but they are not repentant. These guys, it's not that they haven't been worshipping the God of Israel. It's not that they're not even prepared to worship him at this new altar that Gideon's built. They just still want the other ones as well. They have a diversified portfolio of gods. They are hedging their bets. See, maybe the God of Israel for them is a great memory. This is our kind of heritage, our story. We came out of Egypt and we're in here and that's good that's good we've got this special god but also you know we need that god of um that's going to help us grow the crops and that fertility goddess over there that's going to help us become a strong nation lots of kids and and this and that and we just need to feel secure so we'll just have all the gods and this is not okay this is exactly the thing in verse one this is the evil that israel did in the sight of the lord He wants them to trust him. And later on in chapter 8, at the end of Gideon's story, we see that they return to idol worship. They actually start to worship this gold symbol of priesthood that um, Gideon builds. And the text says that they prostitute themselves by worshipping this idol. So worship of other gods is really serious because the God of Israel, our God that sends Jesus wants relationship with us. He is a jealous God. So Israel is unrepentant. It's something we need to hear, I think, ourselves as they cling to their idol worship, just to pause and ask, are there other things that I'm hedging my bets on? What are the other things that I can't do without for my own security and sense of self-worth? Well, what about Gideon and his tests? Gideon, after his father protects him, by the way, did you like his father's response? Don't kill him. If Baal is angry about it, let him kill him. And he exposes these gods as false gods. And now the Midianites in 33 and the Amalekites and other eastern people join forces, cross over the Jordan and camp ready for war right where Gideon is. And we're told in verse 34, the spirit of the Lord comes upon Gideon and the language is of clothing the spirit of the Lord clothes Gideon and he becomes the judge that will rescue them from these oppressors he blows a trumpet and he gathers his clan and some of the others tribes as well not all of them and he collects we're told in the next chapter 32,000 men for war and just at the last minute he doubts again 
okay, we're ready, I've got 32,000, but I just want to do this test. I've got this fleece and I'm going to put it out and if overnight you can keep the ground dry and get the fleece wet, uh, then I'm going to know that this is for real. So he does that and in the morning he wakes up and the fleece is wet and he gets a bowl full of water and um, God does the test for him. It's not hard for God, I would imagine. Uh, okay, hang on, maybe I should have done it the other way. It would be harder for the fleece to be dry and the ground to be wet. So can we just, one more night, let's just do it that way. And again, God does it. It's not a big deal for God to do this, to reassure Gideon. God is pleased to reassure Gideon. This is a massive thing he's called to do. And he's weak and he's afraid. And he's about to do something very very crazy for God in for victory for Israel. All right. Well, that actually gets us to the end of that chapter. And let me just tell you what happens to those 32,000 if you don't know the story. God looks at Gideon and his army of 32,000 and he says, that's too many people. If you go in and you win the victory with 32,000 men, you're going to start boasting and say that it's because you're strong. So what I want you to do is to say to the people, to the army, if you're afraid, you can go home. 22,000 people went home. So Gideon's left with 10,000. And God says, oh, it's still too many. You're still going to boast. You're going to go in there and you're going to win the victory and you'll start boasting that it was because of you and your strength and your war tactics. This is about my rescuing of you. So what I want you to do is take them down to the water and let them drink. And the ones who bend down and cup the water up like this, send them home. But the ones who lap the water like dogs, keep those ones. It's very random, I think. I mean, people have theories about why, but I think it's just, it's, it's just a fun, random thing. 300 people are left. Gideon has 300 people. And God says, now go. I want you to go into this camp. He says, but, Gideon, if you're still worried, Gideon hasn't said this, but if you're still worried, go down to the camp and listen. So Gideon goes down to the camp, and when he's there, he hears one of the enemy talking to another. And by the way, that image of locusts swarming the land is what it looks like when he sees the enemy. They are covering the land. They are too numerous, it says. They are like the sand on the seashore, and Gideon's got 300 men. But he hears someone say to another, I just had the weirdest dream. I dreamt that this big loaf of bread <laughs> came rolling into the camp and knocked, down, knocked us down. And the other, the other guy says, I'm not joking. See, you'll have to go home and read this. The other guy says, that is the sword of Gideon. They are coming. They're going to come and kill us. They were terrified. And Gideon knows in that moment that God is with him and that they're going to win the victory. See, God can bring visions to anyone. He's in control of the whole situation. So Gideon's war tactic is this. He gives everybody a lamp and a pottery bowl to put over the top and a trumpet. He says, we're going to go around tonight in the dark so they can't see us and when I give you the word I want you to smash the pottery hold up your lamps blow your trumpets and yell out uh, a sword for Gideon for the Lord and for Gideon so they 
they do this. They go down when he gives the word. They smash, they make this noise, they hold up, they, they roar, they yell out the sword, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And the Midianites, we're told, turn on each other. They start to fight each other and they run away. And they are chased by um, Gideon and uh, the other tribes. As they move south, they are chased out and they win the victory. It's a really crazy story, isn't it? <laughs> and, and really quite amazing, I think. Another one of those stories of God's salvation that looks nothing like you might expect. And we're told um, in those chapters that then under Gideon, Israel had peace for 40 years until he died. Well, what is revealed about God in this story? I'm going to give you actually a minute to think. What has struck you about the character of God, the same God that we worship here today in this story? Have a think. You might want to share it with someone just for a moment. I'm going to ask you. Does anyone want to share any thoughts? I've got a list, so you don't have to. <laughs> patient. Yeah. Very patient and reassuring. Yeah. Jealous, I said at the start. God is a jealous God. He won't put up with worship of other, other gods and unfaithfulness to him. He's the true God. The Baals can't uh, respond to the demolishing of the altar. God is powerful, uh, gracious able to save and more powerful than we can imagine. God rescues Israel when they cry out to him, even though they are not repentant. In Romans 5.8 we read, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The character of God in this story is God's character forever. He is always like this. He's ready when we cry out to him. He's ready. Even if you're just regretting the circumstances of what's going on around you, God is ready. He loves us. He wants to step in. Some of the things you see about God in this passage you might be struggling with, you might find difficult to accept. And if that's true, I ask you to take it to God in prayer and to talk to someone about it. Because we can't make a different kind of God we can't accept some things and reject others. That is actually creating another kind of idol. It's important to let God be God and to worship him alone and truly. Well, there's that issue of repentance. And if you are someone today who knows that you need to repent and worship the one true God, then I encourage you to do it or to work out whether you want to do it. <laughs> is this a God you can trust? When you look at the person of Jesus, who is really our judge figure, our saviour, is this the God that you want to worship? Find out more or don't hesitate and do it if you're ready. Well, maybe you need to repent and you've done it a thousand times before. The good news is that God is still ready and waiting to hear that we want to let go of things that we're holding on tightly to and receive the grace that he offers. That could be anything in our culture. So many things we're offered to hold on to. Money and status and wealth and relationships and respectability and reputation. Things that we, you'll know it's an idol if you can't bear to lose it. 
Can you hold things out to God and ask him to be in control of your life alone? Well, that's idolatry and repentance, but what else is there for us in Gideon's story? We do make a lot of the fleeces. Should we or shouldn't we lay a fleece out tonight for God? Ask him about that thing we're wondering about. I think Gideon's story is a little bit different to some of our decision-making. It was a big, big deal. But actually, the thing I think you can see in the story is God didn't mind. He didn't mind that Gideon felt his weakness and he needed reassurance. Better to be that kind of Gideon than the Gideon you'll find in chapter 8, who starts to tax people of the gold they've plundered, build an object that people will worship, and start to get rights. He's won this victory. He starts to forget that it was God who won it, despite all the other things that happened. It's good to know that you are weak. It's good to ask God for reassurance if you need it. And we have plenty of reassurance. We have the Bible. We have one another. We have free access to God through Jesus. We can go and talk to him and pray to him anytime because our sins are forgiven. It was different for Gideon and the Israelites. You know, Gideon is clothed with the Holy Spirit. That was a special thing. We have the Holy Spirit with us now if we trust in Jesus, helping us, softening our hearts, inclining us towards God, helping us to receive his grace. There is no shame in weakness, in needing God. In fact, God loves to work in places of weakness. Gideon was clothed with the Holy Spirit and God clothed himself with human flesh. The ultimate salvation story is about God making himself weak for our sake, identifying with our weakness, taking it on and dying for us so that we could have life in him. If we learn to love weakness, we will love the thing that God loves. And yet everything against in our culture is against this, I believe. We live in a, in a culture that asks us to put forward our strengths all the time. We have a thing called imposter syndrome. You know, you've heard of it. When you start in a job and you think, everyone's going to find out that I shouldn't be here because this, this and this. Keep it hidden. If you're a parent, it's Mother's Day today, you will know how hard it is to admit when you're struggling to be a parent because working with children, maybe you're in kids' ministry, maybe you're a teacher, maybe you're a parent, working with children is really hard. You will never feel your weakness more. When you're tired and struggling, when you can't sing to get your point across. <laughs> but in our weaknesses, we must not, well, the thing to do, I think, is not to just cry out to God to fix it. That's what Israel was doing. Fix the problem, God. I need to get on. I need to feel better. But to go to God with our weakness and to allow him to give us grace and to work in that place. And as I've thought about how to specifically challenge us with this today, I really just want to say we must learn to pray. It's the first thing. I could ask us to become activists and to work in spaces where there are weak people, and that's something really important too. But the first step is to know our own weakness and to bring it to God. And I am really concerned about prayer in the church, in the Western world, and in our lives. And I say this because I've struggled so much in my life and in ministry, to pray. Because, you know, we've got it pretty good. 
and we have a lot of gifts and we're fairly competent people and we can make a good fist of most things, I think. But this is God's work. This is God's ministry. We are his people. And like Gideon, he actually wants to reveal his glory in our weakness. So the first step is to pray. And if you're struggling to pray, set yourself a goal each day this week to sit with God. Attach it to something that you're already doing. You eat breakfast, you wash the dishes, you get the tram. What is it? What's the thing that this week, when you're doing it, you're going to be with God and you're going to just accept his grace for all of you, your strengths and your weaknesses together and ask him to be at work in you. We must pray. We must depend on God. I'd love, it's a goal of our church that we will grow in this this year. And so I just ask you to be very serious about it. It's not a waste of time. It looks like a weak thing, prayer, but it's not a waste of time. It's probably the most important thing we could do, I think, at this stage. I'll just leave you with a thought. This week, um, Jean Vanier, you might have heard of, who founded the Lush Communities, the Ark, it's called. Uh, if you don't know about him, he was a French man who was a, a war veteran and a philosopher who invited two men who had intellectual disability to live with him in his home. Initially, his urge was to do something for these men, but this changed into a commitment to simply be with them in their vulnerability and weakness. And he discovered that, that God's love and grace was abundant there. He didn't need to fix things. He just needed to live in this weakness. And the charter of the communities of Lash, and there's many, many all around the world now, says this, weakness and vulnerability in a person, far from being an obstacle to union with God, can foster it. It is often through weakness, recognised and accepted, that the liberating love of God is revealed. Wouldn't it be wonderful if our church could be a place where this is revealed, God's liberating love in our weakness? Let me pray for us. Loving Lord God, we are weak in so many ways. When you see us, you know all the parts of us and you love us. You long to restore us to yourself, to show us grace upon grace. Help us to yield to you. Help us to rejoice in the death of your son for our sake and to encourage each other and reassure each other when we feel our weakness to know that you are love and that you long to bind us to yourself and in community with one another. And let us be a community that extends this kind of love to the people around us and in your world. And we pray in Jesus' name.